Welcome to the Language of Ahava podcast, a podcast for families with young children. So what happens when a rabbi and an early childhood teacher walk into a podcast? I think it's going to be fun, and I'm sure it's going to be about connections. Hi, I'm Karen DeWister, and I'm the early childhood teacher. And I'm David Steinhardt. I'm the senior rabbi at B'nai Torah Congregation. Every conversation that I have with Karen is always fascinating and leads to new ideas. So joining together with Karen, making connections together is really what our goal is. I thank you because what the perspective that you bring to my world and my experiences from the Torah, from tradition, from community, um, from parenthood and grandfatherhood, it's all magnificent. So here comes our podcast. Uh, we'll be posting every other Friday just before Shabbat because we want to make these connections with you. And when you give a little ahava, you make this world a better place. I'm ready, Karen. Let's get going. Here we go. This is episode number 19, and we are in the final episodes of this podcast. I can't believe it. It has been an incredible time talking with young families and discovering all the ways the Jewish values and Jewish traditions help us to understand the challenges and emotions that young families go through. But today is a very special conversation, and it began with one of our guests sharing a book she made for her grandson. I've heard her process, and I knew this was a gift that had to be shared with other families. It's a photo book called A Very Strange Year, the COVID year. And my question for everyone that I want to ask is, what is your family's COVID story? What do you want to remember from these historic times? And how will you frame experiences that flip normal into something completely unrecognizable and unprecedented? So I can't wait to introduce you to our two most wonderful guests today. But right now, let me check in with Rabbi Steinhardt. Hi, Rabbi. How are you this week? Hi, Karen. I'm well. It was really a, an up and down week, you know, that we had great celebration here this week with Purim. And then there was also kind of the, the devastation and despair that we all feel in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. So, but, uh, you know, we're, we're managing and we're getting going through it. Yeah, and I think as we talk about our COVID book and story, it will be followed by how we live in other challenging times because a war that has felt this close has not been part of our history in a very long time. So um, I hope today's conversation applies for families with courage, resilience, and fearlessness. But I want you to introduce our first guest, Rabbi. I think you know her pretty well. Well, I do. And <laughs> I'm really honored. And it's a privilege to be able to introduce uh, uh, Toby to, to the people who are listening and watching this podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Toby, she is a, uh, a dermatologist here in Boca Raton and has been working as a doctor for um over 28 years here, but um, perhaps more importantly than her work as a, as a physician is what she does for family. And Toby really is all in with her grandchildren, with all of her grandchildren, evoking both uh, creative thinking and processing as well as lots and lots of fun activities. And she devoted herself during COVID to taking care of her two grandsons Miles and Teddy, who live in uh, who live in Miami Shores, 
and there's been a great uh, project that's been done as a result of that, which I know that everyone who has seen it has felt to be very important. And also I feel proud of all of Toby's work. This is just another example of it. And let me just jump in here. For those that aren't on audio and can't see Toby's screen, that is Dr. Toby Steinhardt, who is Rabbi's wife uh, and partner. So I um, welcome Toby, please um, tell us what motivated um, this gift that you created and the questions you might've been trying to answer for yourselves. So first of all, Karen, I think it's a really good thing to note uh, for the purposes of this podcast and the timing of it. This really coincides with the two-year history or the two-year anniversary of when we shut down. So I know it's been discussed. I know it's been on the, uh, on the, on the, in the inside and the forefront of a lot of our consciousness to think back about what the last two years have meant, specifically the year starting in March of 2021 when it shut down. The um, motivation for me was that uh, during COVID, I started to think both neurotically and appropriately that I could die within a week. And that was a profound thought that I walked around with a lot. And it was a result of living through this experience and watching what was happening, for example, in New York in March and April and May, how perfectly healthy people were alive and well one week, but gone the next. And so I started to think to myself, if that happened to me, what would I want to leave? What message would I want to leave for my grandson, my then five-year-old or four-year-old grandson who, with whom I was spending a lot of time? So I had this idea in my mind for a long time that I would somehow put together a collection of photographs and a bit of narration with captions about what our experiences have been together during that time. Ironically, I was a big procrastinator and I was literally thinking about this for a year and a half. And a year and a half into this, my daughter was diagnosed with COVID. And that meant that I suddenly, on a Monday, found myself with 48 hours with nothing to do. And so I sat down at my kitchen table and I started the process of putting this together. Because before that, I always felt, oh, I'm too busy. I I can't pay attention to it. So I just find it extremely ironic that this was the motivating factor to get it done. And so I put together pictures and stories about what happened. It's really only a part of my experience with my grandson. There was a lot of verbal interaction, storytelling, and conversations that we had that I didn't put in the book. Um, But that was really what motivated me to do it. That's a context. (laughs) And, And I know that each family that does this, whether it's a parent or a grandparent, their context will be unique and equally meaningful. Um, at least I hope, meaningful. Um, I do want to tell everyone that my first reaction looking at your book was how you wove the cultural context of masks, going to a drugstore, virtual school, all of these things with the, they became anchored in the family rhythm 
of day-to-day -day children's lives. So for me, that combination was so profound that I wanted everybody to have this same experience replicated. But let me introduce, before I ask you to show and tell a little bit and get into some of the specifics of what you chose and, and how you start pulling meaning and images. Um, and Rabbi, I'm gonna want you jumping back in because you are from a tradition of storytellers and meaning makers. But our other guest today is Dr. Karen Neal. And, and Karen, you are gonna be, I wanna interview you and I want you to be the interviewee in this conversation as well. So, um, but Karen is a magnificent storyteller in her own right. Yes, a professional storyteller. And she's also taught endless numbers of teachers and professionals to be better storytellers themselves. She's taught storytelling at FAU, Florida Atlantic University here in Boca Raton for the last 20 years. She co-produces and co-hosts on National Public Radio, The Public Storyteller. We're a big fan of that. And, um, as, and also many other community storytelling events that I know and love as well. So Karen, you are the best person I could imagine to help guide us through how do we find a way to tell our stories and to choose what we want to include, how we represent loss, how we represent joy and celebration, and possibly the cultural context of storytelling. Because if we're just telling it for ourselves, it's one thing, but Toby's book is for her family, for future generations. And I know this is going to be a continually evolving story for all of us. Um, so we just get a snapshot of now when we make a book like this, but I know it's gonna grow and change. So welcome, Karen. Um, what, whether you'd like to share how storytelling helps us process the strange year, or whether you want to say something more personal about storytelling for families. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, I can't thank you enough for inviting me here today to talk about this subject. And I'll try to keep my remarks brief because I wrote a whole dissertation on family storytelling. This is exactly up my alley. And the, so many of the things that I've heard both you and Toby say uh, have just resonated. I've been taking notes furiously, listening with one ear and taking notes with the other. But the words that jump out at me, particularly uh, the, the word that jumps out at me particularly is meaning. And meaning making, as we know from Viktor Frankl and way before then, meaning making uh, is so such an important element of what makes our lives um, livable, right? If we find meaning in things, then we can go on, no matter how difficult they are, we can go on and take one step in front of the next. And I think Toby has done a magnificent job of making meaning out of something that absolutely could have been tragic. The other word, uh, secondary word that I heard in the conversation is the word choice. And one definition of art is that art is about choice. There's so many myriad elements of, of experience and of color and of material out there. How do we choose which ones to focus on? 
And those are going to be different for everybody. Uh, I was very interested before we got on um, on the recording, I was very interested in something Rabbi said uh, about uh, survivors of the Holocaust and how difficult it was for them to speak. And I think uh, I do a lot of work with Holocaust memoir. And I, and I think what constantly people are up against is uh, how do I choose what to say to which audience? And how do I choose what is relevant for now and, and, and what I can tell and what I can't tell? And these are going to differ for everybody. So it's so much a part of your comfort level as the teller as well as your audience's comfort level. And storytelling is just like any communication, it's an exchange and it's a two-way exchange, right? So uh, we co-create content based on what we're seeing the listener respond to. So presumably, and I don't mean to speak for you, Toby, but presumably when you were choosing these stories and these photos and everything else, you were thinking very uh, carefully about what would resonate with your grandchildren. And that's so much a part of this. So it's definitely a two-way street. Um, I'd like to spend a second talking about um, some of my concerns about the book, and then we can be more specific maybe about which stories. But um, I started to think a lot about memory in childhood. And I started to think, am I taking a chance here by the curation of the pictures and the narrative that I've put in there? Am I replacing my grandson's story, his own personal experience with my experience because I have been the, in a sense, the controller of that narrative. And that's obviously something I actually don't wanna do. I want him to have his own memories as well as looking at it through someone else's eyes. So I read a little bit about um, memory in children and the development of memory before I came on. And uh, just to help organize it, I find it helpful to think about um, two kinds of memory development. The first one is called episodic memory. And that's the earliest kind of memory a child might develop. And that starts at a very, I, I think really basically in, in maybe in toddler years, an example of episodic memory is that you are, um, the child is remembering the what, where, and when of something. So for example, the 18-month-old, uh, the, the mother has bought the 18-month-old a big blue ball. And that ball is in the child's bedroom. She places it in there. And then he wakes up the next day and he looks over his crib and there's that big blue ball again. And he begins to formulate an expectation that uh, his mother has put this ball here and he expects to see it the next day again when he wakes up. So that's an episodic memory. That's the very earliest kind. The second kind of memory occurs after the age of four. And this begins to really happen in the five-year-old and up. Five to seven is what the scientists say. That's called an autobiographical memory. The autobiographical memory is a memory that's more um, complexly constructed because it matches the development of the synapses that the child is, is forming in his brain. That's a memory that might be explained like this. It has not just the what, where, and when, but it has in it also how, why, 
and uh, who was involved. So how, why, and who. In this case, the example might be something like, okay, so now this child has an older sibling and the older sister comes in and takes that blue ball and throws it against the wall. And the kids start running around the room and they have a great time and they're squealing with laughter. And then the, the little boy picks it up and he starts to throw it and the sister is squealing with laughter. And that becomes a more contextual kind of memory that develops later that now you have an association with the ball that's meaningful and not only impacts the outside, the older sister, but begins to impact the child, the younger child in something that can be formulated as a substantial memory. Most of us in our lives have something called childhood amnesia. What that means is that if I ask you, Karen, what's your earliest memory? Your earliest memory usually can't be retrieved from before the age of three or four. The reason why is you just were neurologically immature and it wasn't possible to remember those things. After that, when you have an autobiographical context, something, some place to put this experience, and you have the corresponding synapses, you can lay that memory down. But most of us can't do that before that age, four, five, six, seven. Often you think you have an early memory, but your early memory is actually the repetition of a story your mother told you that happened in your life truly at a certain point in your life, but you begin to incorporate it as your own experience because you hear the story or you see the photograph. Otherwise, it was a complete blank. There would be no memory of that thing, but we think we remember very early stories. So again, my, the, the hazard and my concern about this book was that I would be taking a set of memories that my then four-year-old grandson would or could be developing and I was gonna erase them and now he was only going to have the book. So it might be interesting to hear your thoughts about how family narratives interact with those kinds of memories. Karen, would you like to grab that? Sure. Uh, somebody really famous, and I always forget who it is. It was a really famous author like William James, I think, said there's three things to remember, and I'm paraphrasing, three, three things to always remember in life. Be kind, be kind, be kind. And so the first thing that comes up to me is I am sure that although you are curating, and we all curate all the time, although you are curating memories, I am sure that what you are doing is very helpful to him and is not going to be a problem. That's the very first thing I would say. Uh, but I, uh, I honor and I uh, admire that that is a concern. Uh, the second thing I would say is there, there is uh, something uh, uh, educational psychologists say about memory as well, not just childhood memory, but the more we take out a memory, a memory is like, let's say, lace. The more we take it out and handle it and use it, the more it changes, right? So if we tell, if we dine out on a story every year, it's going to be um, influenced by who we are that year, right? So I would suggest that if the child has that memory, uh, 
it will remain fairly intact uh, if he or she then is, uh, if those memories are then subsumed by your memories, I don't think those other memories are going to go away. So I would really tell you that what you're giving is a gift. And after all, it is your perspective. You are not taking sure. over the, the narrative, in my opinion. So I wouldn't be concerned about it, but I admire that you are, and I, I understand. It's such a profound question. I mean, I think that's how our conversation started, Toby. Mm -hmm. And I loved, and I agree with Karen, that your gift isn't your creating um, reality. It is your gift of how you saw, heard, and felt that very strange year. So your gift is Gaga's eyes, Gaga's heart. Um, for your children, for your grandchildren. Second, um, to the developmental, it is, with that synapse development, what I know about pre-verbal children is that often they will recreate or ask a question about something six months after the fact because they did not verbalize it in the moment. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just hasn't been brought into the light and so they need us to help bring thought and language together into representation and with that co-creation we then become we co-create stories even with very young children the last thing i just want to say is i know from personal experience uh, from my own family because uh, i um, i do feel like i'm very in touch with my inner child uh, both real and imagined but my story is pre-internet i went on the search for my favorite children's book that i remembered belovedly and it took me uh, a decade to find it through every antique store in the Northeast. And when I found it and sat down with my father, who read that book to me, uh, well, sorry, I sat down with my mother. She said, don't remember this at all. Wow. Showed it to my father. He went, hmm, I kind of remember that. And I was like, this is my heart and soul. Like, I, I can tell you every image. I can tell you every detail. I showed it to my brother. And he said, that wasn't your book. That was my book, my big brother. So children do have, and, I, and my other thing to say to parents, not to be so mm, obsessed with creating great memories for children is that the things you we do as grown-ups to create great and especially perfect memories for our children um, they got they are long forgotten and the things that our children choose to remember and choose to connect to heart and soul are uniquely and privilegedly their own so um I, I think the book is a gift, and but I think the other thing that's so valuable that we've sort of talked about is as you share this book with a, with a child, to, it's not a one-way communication. This it is as 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 Miles hears that story, feels that story, and brings himself into the story. Now we have the lace growing and stretching in some beautiful, beautiful way. So I want to give it back to Toby to show the book, but I've got to let Rabbi get a word in because, oh, go ahead, Karen. 
Oh, I was just going to quickly say uh, a part of reading a book with a child is always interaction anyway. A uh, picture book, you're always asking questions and you're always letting the child lead. So that will be part of it for anybody. And then eventually when he or she then turns to the next child and, or anybody else and says, this is what happens, it will, not, it will be exactly what you just said, that, that interweaving. So uh, it is part and parcel with going over. Uh, through a book with the child in any case. True. Rabbi, care to so, jump in? Sure. The other part of it, obviously, is personalizing an experience. So this is about COVID uh, 2020 through 2022. But this is about the, the experience of these boys during that period of time. And so then it just makes it much more real. And for that matter, obviously, it becomes very memorable in that way. So, you know, we are a tradition that's built on storytelling, you know, going way back before there was even written language. I mean, all people, uh, they developed culture by virtue of sitting around the fire and telling stories. And those stories then define their, defined meaning in their lives, right? It defined meaning and it also, I think it kept alive the past, but also created aspiration. So we're just a few weeks before Passover, Passover is all about telling the story. In, in the Bible, where Passover is mentioned, before the event even takes place of the great event, the great miracle of that night of the Passover, the, the Torah says that you're to tell your children this story. It hasn't even happened yet. And then it repeats afterwards, after it happens, this is what you have to do every year. And then just to personalize that for a moment, uh, my, the maternal side of my family comes came from Europe. They came from Germany. And after we would eat the meal, then my grandmother would always sit down with us and tell us her stories, the family stories. And it made the ancient story so real. So I think that that's what we do. We keep storytelling alive. It creates what's real. I love it. Okay, Toby, with bated breath, show us your favorite pages or the pages you feel like sharing with us. Um, and, and or maybe the ones that had choice, um, I know for me, it was this idea that this force happens outside of the world and a family um, then responds. Uh, well, I will first, I'd like to say that um, certainly the, Miles isn't here to hear this, it's quite sugar-coated in the sense that Miles had a really, really tough year. And there were a number of very traumatic and just lousy days that he had. And one okay, so pause. I, 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 so there. So I want to know your choice. It goes back to Karen's comment early that each one of us t decides the meaning that we ascribe. That's right. Is it a sugar coating? Is it? Um, will he remember his struggle and then have a perspective laid over it? Um, that, that choice to, to put a child's struggle into a softer perspective. Right. Um, uh, yes, I would say that's right. That, I mean, I think you felt a moral question about, is it okay to do that? Right. So he had a particularly tough time with remote kindergarten. Um, the reality of what was going on on a day-to-day -day basis was, uh, was a little different than the pictures that I show. Because in the pictures, and I don't know how well you can see, 
Here he is starting remote kindergarten at a desk in his house, and his kindergarten was an iPad. And you might see another one here. And my text was, and, I'll, and there's, I'm going to tell you a specific reason why I did this in the end. So before those two pictures, I've written, then in August, you started remote kindergarten at Miami Shores Elementary School. That meant your house became your place of study, your classroom was an iPad, and your teacher was a face and a voice on the screen. And then I showed the pictures. And then I have an additional picture here. And then another picture where if you can appreciate Miles's face, he's looking awful, frustrated. Mom's sitting with him on his bed. He's covered with his favorite stuffed animals. And I write, and sometimes it was so frustrating that you just needed a break. Now I'm going to tell you- Is that sugar coating? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it is because he had, um, he had tantrums. Yeah. No. I think it shows that. I think it shows his vulnerability. Um, yeah. But then what I did was I wrote, but every school day you sat down at, with your iPad, listened to your teacher, saw the other kids who were also learning from home, and you never gave up. And I felt like, and that's on a standalone page. And I felt like I had to sum up for him the fact that as miserable as it was and as frustrated as it was, and even though the, the photographs don't show a kid pounding a pillow and screaming, he did not give up. And so I wanted him to feel that he was challenged, but that he can feel really good about his accomplishments. And then I have included a picture of the day, the day he finished remote kindergarten. So I can tell you when he looked at that, he was very excited. Yeah. And so what, I, what I'm doing is I'm giving him from my perspective that as bad as it was, he didn't give up. And he's seeing him in a best. different light. Yeah. Karen, you have a comment? Without making this too grandiose, the, uh, a monomyth of American culture, as jo Joseph Campbell, the great scholar of myth, once said, and that, that people have, have uh, um, disagreed with this over the years, but at the time that he wrote it, it was definitely true, it was the hero's journey. And every story, whether or not we accept the hero's journey, every story in Western tradition has uh, three parts to it, and that is the setting out the um, uh, the struggle and the overcoming the struggle. And I think if you had not included any struggle, that wouldn't have been fair because the beauty of the story and is just what you just said, the feeling of, of that, that picture, that wonderful picture at the end, the feeling of pride and confidence and um, success that he has gotten was hard won. And that the struggle deserves to be um, to be recorded. 
it does not did not need to be recorded in any gory detail. I think what you did with the frustration was exactly perfect. And let, there are some things he doesn't need to remember in great detail. And to show him, that I don't have to tell you, to show him pictures of his cancer was not, was not going to help anything. But by the same token, to ignore it altogether was not going to help. There is a great... There's a good reason why the, those stories were so important to our culture and to most cultures is that we need uh, to go through anthropologically and, and Karen would probably say developmentally too. We need to overcome uh, uh, problems in order to grow as a person and as a society. And you were documenting great growth. And I think that was wonderful. This, this was, uh, it, he, he overcame something that in, and it, even in a small way, all children overcome their, you, as you know, better than I, uh, children have trouble going to school for all kinds of reasons. This was an extreme example, but, uh, I think you handled it beautifully. I think that was quite a gift to him that you did. Thank you. And I and think I... The, the safety of him on that with those animals, he will remember the struggle that, that was asked of him, but you captured a moment. But before you go on, Toby, let me just say, in terms of curating, all choices are legitimate. And FAU right now in the art gallery has a photo exhibit by someone who calls, who wrote a book about a badass grandmother. And I think her book is called A Real Life. And it is the tears, the struggle. It, it flips all of this on its head and it does document um, what's, what makes some people uncomfortable to see children in those vulnerable, uh, raw moments. Uh, but for, her, for that family, um, I think that it's, 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 they've made different choices and it works beautifully for them. So um, thank you. But go ahead, Toby. Yeah, I was going to say, um, Karen, yes, that model of the struggle and what you do to overcome it and coming out at the other end um, stronger for it. I think that for that year period or that year and a half period, um, when both of his parents got COVID, the same kind of experience becomes uh, symbolic of whatever struggles are coming in that year and then beyond that year, because there were, you, you, could, you could substitute many different times, words, actions, and results for this, with the same structure of organization. So and in a sense, we're organizing how, not only how the how the events happen, but then how do you resolve it in the end? And how do you feel good about what's happening? And I have to say, I think Miles has, based on a, a tape, I interviewed him uh, recently and he said some things into the phone about how he was feeling about COVID. I feel as if he has come out with a deeper love for his parents, or at the very least, the ability to express a deeper love for his parents having gone through this experience. You know, I'm not the first person to say that we will all experience conflict in our lives. It's how we address conflict uh, that, uh, tell, that um, expresses what kind of character we have. And the way we learn to express, to uh, deal with conflict uh, uh, is by being 
put in front of conflicts. <laughs> if parents prevent any problem from ever touching the child, the child will never be able to deal with the inevitable conflict. Absolutely. So I hate to say this was a gift for Miles. I don't want to go that far. But what you have been able to do is absolutely turn lemons into the lemonade. I, Toby, I'm going to ask you to share another page before we finish. Um, as everybody can hear and see, we need to do this together in a meeting, in a workshop where other families can come and bring their stories and we can show you all of Toby's book. Um, I would love, please, please email me, contact me, message me to follow up on this. Um, I will say that I love the pictures in Toby's book where she is in full dermatological um, headgear because I never saw you like that. And it was like, whoa. Um, and then the mannequins with the masks, you took some, pu some public pictures, interweaving them with your family pictures. And then my favorite, of course, is Miles getting his vaccine and being cheered by everyone at Walgreens. Um, local facts about South Florida to the name of the stores, the name of his school. I think those are invaluable. Um, but let me have Toby show one more piece and then get a wrap up comment from Karen and from Rabbi because we could do we could do this for a whole day. It is such a worthy topic. But please, everyone, um, think of how your stories will be told. Go ahead, Toby. Okay. Well, I had um, I would call this an advantage. I had the advantage of being out of work for two months. Now, normally it's not such an advantage, but it was an advantage because I was able to spend that time with Miles and help my very pregnant daughter at that point. And so it worked out well. I included, when I did go back to work, I included a photograph of myself um, and in the sort of diary of the book, in May 2020, after two months off, I returned to work looking rather strange in my personal protection equipment. So I felt that was a dose of reality in the book. And then the picture, the other picture Perfect page. is uh, Karen, the one where I was in the Aventura Mall and I passed by a store and this was the, uh, this was the inside of the store. And, you know, as we all have had the experience of walking in our front door, maybe, and whatever your occasional table is that receives your droppings from the day, covered with masks at my daughter's house from having little boys and stuff all over the place, but the masks were prominent. Um, and then I also spent some time thinking about how difficult it was for him socially um, he had to have a birthday party with uh, essentially no children. Um, and I have, I'm going to try to see if I can find it quickly for you. In July, he had a birthday where he was uh, completely alone other than his uh, local family. And that was, that was hard for him. Um, if I remember correctly, when you showed me the book, you curated that for a little emotional effect where you only had two family members in the photo. So it looked a little more sparse than it did in reality. 
Is that true? Well, so yeah, everybody can take that creative license, even with your family right. memories. So I'll tell you this. It says, and then it was July 21st, 2020, your fifth birthday. Birthdays were tough that year. No one was able to invite friends. So your local family came and celebrated with you. And I have a photograph of his grandfather sitting by himself in a room with a happy birthday sign, couple presents on the desk, and that was about it. And what's so beautiful about that picture is how evocative it is. I mean, it it the absence speaks louder than the picture. So I I really cannot say enough about how fabulous. If we do this in person, I'm going to want all those on slides. <laughs> Toby, will you read the last page for us, please? Okay, the very last page shows a picture of his new baby brother, who was born in November. So, and so, after the challenges of the year 2020-2021 turned out to be a very good year, an amazing year, a year of new life, great joy and love, and the year you learned how to be a wonderful big brother. Thank you. Thank you. Bravo, Toby. I mean, I, it was, I, I, I am moved and touched every time I talk and see this book. Karen, final comments for our listeners, or for, of course, for Toby, um, in all that she accomplished, but for the listeners who, um, a last word on curating this story or a story for their family. First, I, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I ask you, Karen, what was the name of that book that was a seminal book for you? And I've just got to ask you. Oh, <laughs> it's shocking. It was, a, it, you know, because I'm part of that children's literature conversation of is, is our golden books children's literature. It was an oversized anthology, but it had silly will in there. And it had a book by um, by famous authors that were illustrated then with gold books. I'll bring you the book one day. I will bring it the to first you. It, the other thing I wanted to say is sometimes when people have terrific models of terrific ideas as Toby brought in, sometimes people get a little intimidated. They think, well, my, I'm not the photographer she is. I'm not the writer she is. I don't have the accesses of the time or whatever. And I just want to point out that Toby's book is Toby's book and that we all have our own beauty and our own artistry and our own families and our own way of doing things. And it's beautiful. And our families will love them because they're ours. And uh, I, I don't want anybody to feel or I, let me put it in a positive way, I would like people to feel encouraged, rather than perhaps intimidated by this magnificent model, because this is something everyone can do on some level. And sometimes it may be just recordings, it may be picture, I and mean, there are so many ways, maybe drawings, there are so many different ways to do it. Thank you so much. Rabbi, final uh, words? Yeah, so I, I began by speaking a little bit about how, this, how storytelling, we create meaning. But it all, it takes effort. So obviously, Toby gave a tremendous amount of thought and time and energy to be able to create this. And that's what, you know, like I would say to everyone who's a, 
who's a teacher and everyone who's a parent to, I would encourage them to take some time and, and put in the effort and it won't be Toby's project. It'll be their project as Karen said. And I think it's really important to do that. And by the way, in the middle of the pandemic, this is Karen Deerwester, I spoke to the staff about when we're able to come together again in a big room. I have an idea for a project that I want to do. And that is I want to get big sheets of paper, hang them on the wall, put them on the floor, and let everybody do interpretive pieces on what it meant for them or how they perceive what they went through, how they think about what they're, what they're coming to now. And I think that that's really important. And then the other thing is this, and this also is related both to what Toby said and Karen Neal said, and that is that, um, you know, and this is the Passover message in all this, you know, the Passover is really a holiday about that which is bitter and that which is sweet. And that in order to really appreciate the sweetness, you do have to taste the bitterness. And that's life. That's the life that we're given. It won't go away. The capacity to be open and honest, to confront it, and then to say, I have the resilience to go beyond that. We have the resilience to go beyond that. That's where, that's where we find the blessing. Thank you. Thank you all for your gifts. And um, we are here to support families out there on your journey and in your stories. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Thanks, Toby and Karen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today, for being part of this moment, for being part of these Ahava connections, and for trying to give a little Ahava to one another. Thank you to my co-host, Rabbi David Steinhardt, for always adding timeless wisdom and a meaningful connection to our world and to this podcast. Thank you, B'nai Torah Congregation, for being our community of support and a place to share with one another. You hold us together in a world that is too often pulling us apart. Thank you to Cantor Magda Fishman for your voice, your whistling, your song, and the soul that you bring to everything you do. If you don't know Cantor Fishman, please check her out at B'nai Torah Services. You will be transformed and inspired. Finally, thank you to the Jewish Federation of South Palm Beach County for helping to fund this Ahava podcast and Ahava Nature Shabbat. And to our Ahava Malahim, our angels, the families who also help underwrite these Ahava projects. For more information about B'nai Torah Congregation, the website is btcboca.org. You can also find me, Karen Deerwester, at familytimeinc.com. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom, and give a little Ahava. Take care. When you give a little love, you'll see You'll make this world a better place, a much better place to be. When you give a little ahava, when you give a little love, you'll see. You'll make this world a better place, a much better place to be. You'll make this world a better place, a much better place to be.